Hi, I'm co-host Lois Donkwa, and this is the 100 Alumni Voices podcast, Stories That Inspire, where we explore the personal and professional journeys of a diverse group of 100 doctoral alumni from Johns Hopkins University. Today, we're joined by Ian Tolfrey, PhD in physics and current entrepreneur in residence at Emerald Development Managers and CEO at TBT Pharma. Hey there, Ian. Hey, how are you today? I'm good. So I'm excited to dive in and learn a little bit about you and really the um, career trajectory and experiences that got you to this moment. So can you start by telling me a little bit more about yourself um, why you chose to pursue a PhD at phys- in physics and also just your graduate work at Hopkins? Yeah. Um, so well, I decided to get a PhD in physics for two reasons. One, when I was eight years old, I read that I read a book by a physicist who said he got paid to think. He spent half his year on safari and half his year thinking about what he thought about on safari and arguing with his grad students. And I thought, wow, that'd be a great career. The second reason was it was the hardest thing I could think of doing. That's funny. And it's it's so funny how kind of our childhood really influences a lot of our conception of jobs and stuff. And I love that you mentioned when you were eight, you were like, I don't know, this seems like it's something for me. Um, it makes me wonder kind of how those um, dreams and things that excited you from your childhood maybe influenced what you were thinking your career path would be while you were during doing your PhD? While I was doing my PhD, I thought I was going to be an academic, but I didn't realize that the type of physics I picked to do, uh, theoretical physics, I was a string theorist. There weren't really a lot of jobs um, outside of academia. There weren't a lot of jobs in academia. I was largely a pen and paper mathematician. And no one throughout my educational process actually sat down and had a discussion about what you would do after you got your PhD. And so I ended up graduating into the economic crisis of 2009 with my PhD, um, finding myself relatively useless to society, for lack of a better phrase, because I didn't really have any skills, or at least obvious skills, that were marketable outside of academia. Oh my goodness. It's I, There's a couple things that are um, that are really sticking out to me. So the the first thing being, you mentioned that you were a string. I, so I, I think I'm going to mess this up because it's opposite from my field. I'm a health policy and management person, but you did kind of string theory, right, in physics? Yeah, I studied rotating black holes and universes shaped like horse saddles. Wonderful. So mathematical formalisms around that. That's really neat. So you did that, and in on one end, there wasn't really a market for you in academia, but then also, because of when you graduated, there maybe wasn't even a market for many people. So I'm curious where, yeah, kind of how that influenced um, the first role that you did after your PhD, and really how you made the decision to pick something like that, since there was so much that was out of your control. 
the short answer was necessity. I had had kids early on in grad school and I needed a job. I, I didn't have family support. Uh, my family couldn't support me. And so I had to figure out what to do. The first role I took was actually a physics education postdoc at Hopkins. It was a donor funded position to redesign the intro physics lab curriculum, which effectively killed my academic career. Um, but I got to know all of the deans at Krieger and writing very well in the department chairs. It was somewhat of a high profile position. And that, that's sort of what killed my academic career. And when that was done, since that had a time frame on it, I ended up in the intelligence community as a data scientist, as a Java programmer, having never programmed a day in my life. They handed me a book on Java and told me I had two weeks to be proficient or I was fired. Wow. I, as someone who has tried and failed at Java, I, I know that's a really hard ask. <laughs> yeah. I mean, congratulations to you for kind of going, all right, this is, this is what I'm being tasked with. So it's such a interesting, but it's such an important lesson to remember that sometimes the hopes that we have or the directions we'd want to go in for our PhD or even any type of academic like what we do after our academic career and pursuing a degree is really driven by the circumstances and the environment that we're in. And I'm really glad that from your lens and your perspective, you're like, well, I it was out of necessity. I needed to figure out what my next step is, whether or not it was what I initially planned. But I'm curious how kind of that that first role kind of brought you to where you are now. And if you could Tell us a little bit more about what you do now, but then also, yeah, how did some of the things that you so, learned during your PhD really frame how you think about things now? So I I was a developer for about 18 months, and then my contractor went under during the era of, are we, aren't we going to fund the government? Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to stay in the field. It was not it didn't keep my mind entertained. It was interesting for a few months, but then every day looked the same for the next 35 years, which gave me a panic attack. And so I was looking for, to try to figure out just what careers I could explore because I still didn't really have a direction yet. And Johns Hopkins had just started a new tech incubator. And I was hired at Hopkins to be the first employee of the new tech incubator. And this is where those relationships during that postdoc that killed my academic career came in handy because I knew all of the department chairs. I knew the deans at Krieger and Whiting. Um, my PhD advisor at this point had moved up to the provost office. And there was just a mutual trust and that I would be able to execute, even though I didn't necessarily have tons of relevant experience. And so I went back to Hopkins in this role and my role there was literally to knock on doors, figure out what research faculty members were doing across Kruger and Whiting, to figure out what was commercializable, specifically the subset that could be commercialized through a startup and didn't need a large company and a ton of money to develop them. And then I would either um, help the faculty members patent that within the university architecture for that, if that was relevant, or they'd already done that, I would help them structure it into a company from where the research stood today to what would a product be, how to do the research to figure out what a product was, and then figure out sort of the time, money, and risk of going from where we are today to what is a product that someone would buy. 
And that's sort of where I started to realize where I was useful. I may have not had come out of my PhD with a lot of practical skills, but I really was taught how to think. And that allowed me to talk to people across departments where usually people specialize in a vertical. I could work with material science, chemistry, biology, biotech, physics, and help them to commercialize. Because Hopkins is so interdisciplinary, word of mouth spread about the resources Fast Forward was offering. And suddenly medicine, nursing, public health were involved. And I just, my job was to talk to all these brilliant faculty members about their research and to work with them to help them turn it into a product. And that's largely how I got on the career path I am on today. I went through a phase uh, where I was a serial entrepreneur. I worked in optics, semiconductors, medical devices, starting companies based on university IP after I left Hopkins, which ultimately led me to venture capital. And where my role today is we invest in seed series A, very early stage startups. And my job is to talk to the faculty members to understand the science, make sure the science works, to translate that science into business outcomes and products, and figure out the time, money, and risk of getting that product to inform investment decisions. That's amazing. It's also, I love kind of being able to connect the dots as you talk, where you really highlighted the importance of relationships to kind of help you get to a moment where you could realize and remember that what you learned in your PhD, even if it wasn't so explicitly reflected in the roles that you were doing, you realized you could really strategically think. And I think that's something that's so easy to forget as kind of PhD students or candidates working on something. You're just so focused on the day-to-day that you forget you're learning how to think and you're learning how to pivot and respond. And I think it's really cool that even in in your roles that you're in now, kind of the venture capital world, it's those relationships and the talking to people that's really that muscle that you're continuing to exercise. Um, And it makes, yeah, Sorry. No, continue, please. It's built on mutual and intellectual trust. Mm -hmm. And, And I think the area of physics I did helps because often as you go up through a PhD program, you get more and more siloed in a vertical. And when you do that, it becomes very hard to see outside your vertical. But the types of physics I did, I had to keep zooming out to effectively tell a story through cartoon pictures and then try to ascribe equations to then mathematically tell that cartoon picture story. And at that level of abstraction, it doesn't matter if it's biotech, chemistry, material science. As long as you zoom out and can connect these broad dots across areas, Mm-hmm. then you could bring value to a conversation. You could understand what someone is doing. And you could think of things that they hadn't thought about before by then specifically because you are not a subject matter expert. Mm-hmm. You don't have these preconceived notions on what should be done and how things should be done. Yeah, that's, I, I mean, so part of my focus is thinking about how different teams can work together. So I am in full agreement. Um, I, I, so it's making me think about mentors and just as someone like PhDs have advisors. So that makes sense. But I'm curious kind of where you, this kind of value for relationships or noticing the importance of reaching across like the quote aisle to people in different disciplines really came from. And I'm curious if there were kind of specific professional mentors that were really important to you or they gave you really important advice that helped guide a lot of your thinking. 
Um, yes, and specifically, it was one sentence. So coming out of physics and academia, you largely, at least the type of physics I did, you largely worked alone, and it was pretty cutthroat. And one of my early business partners, uh, David Brecker is the fellow's name, he said to me, in this business, you have two things, your reputation and your role with And as long as you keep those two things clean and intact, then you can always live to fight another day. Mm-hmm. And he was a person who nobody knew who he was, but that man had one of the most amazing Rolodexes I've ever met in my life. Um, mm-hmm. I can say to him, Dave, I need a person that looks like this. And he would say, oh, how about the head of product at this Fortune 500 company? We're friends <laughs> from back in the day. And within a week, we'd have uh, you know a several hour meeting with that individual to get feedback. That's so cool. And so I just want to quote um, your friend Dave again. It, reputation and your relevance was that it? Roll it, Rolodex. Oh, and your Rolodex. See, I'm glad. I'm glad I asked about that. Right, and it's it's really just it's it makes me think about how kind of first impressions really matter, right? And it's also just like people will remember how you made them feel. And that's how kind of both of those pieces play into get to each other, right? Yes. And, and especially in when you're dealing with, with startups and you're dealing with venture capital, when, when I was trying to get startups off the ground, I probably spoke to my partners on those deals more than I spoke to anyone else in my life. They were the first and last person I talked to every day. Mm-hmm. And so you have to get along with the person you're working with that much. Yeah. And once you invest in a company, you're really tied to that company until it succeeds or fails. It's going to be a uh, you know, five to 10 year endeavor, typically speaking. And so you want to pick people who you get along with, who you like and who you trust and who are going to be honest with you because there's too much at stake. And you know, one of the largest things at stake, frankly, is just time that you just need to be very direct and honest with people. And what that ends up breeding in this ecosystem is people that want to work with you. If you have a great tech, then you get to pick who you take investment from. Mm-hmm. But on the investor side, you want to be the person that people want to have in the deal because you add value beyond just capital. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's right. Remembering that you have value beyond capital. And it's making me think about kind of, your entry point from kind of your PhD moment, but then also where you are now. And I I can see how people could look at that and go, whoa, these are really different worlds. But then there's, of course, they're not. And you're using a lot of things that you learned from your PhD. And I'm really curious how for you, since you you came from an academic background, how you kind of would explain kind of that background to prospective partners that you were going to work on projects with or prospective employers when it may not have been so obvious why you were interested in um you know it's frankly easier to talk to people i want to work with than employers okay Uh, talking to employers they see that i've worked in all of these areas that i'm a generalist they see potentially a lack of focus Mm. and they frankly don't know what to do with me because i don't fit in a nice neat box Mm -hmm. But when I talk to uh, potential partners, whether they're collaborators, they're potential investments, they're typically academics and scientists that I'm talking to. And when I tell them the story that I just told you about all the different things that I did, 
that brings value to the table because they understand that I've just seen things that they haven't seen yet Mm -hmm. to do that. And so that's really quite helpful for that. Yeah, that's as someone who's interdisciplinary, I certainly understand how kind of someone that might have a single touch point to what you're doing might not know how to connect all the dots because like you're saying, you, you can seem like a generalist. But I think that that type of role is really important because you're able to really connect the dots in ways that people aren't really thinking about. So that's really important. Yeah. And, and this comes back to coming out of my PhD, where I not only learned how to think, but I effectively became a learning machine. Mm. And so that allows me to learn and get up to speed very quickly on a technology and even hanging out with my friends who work in finance, you know, say they work in derivatives or fixed income, just by sitting in on enough conversations, you get to see a lay of the land and how things work and how people think about things if you pay attention. Mm-hmm. Every moment, whether business or social, is an opportunity to learn if you're surrounded by the right people. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And I love that I love that you said learning machine. That's really cool. Um, so you said surrounded by the right people, but I guess a question can be then how do you find those right people? Like, do do you have any advice on how um, a PhD student who maybe may not be good at initially finding the right people or thinks they have a community, but then realize, oh, wait, this is not actually the right people because I've realized my interests have changed? Um, So a large part of that is knowing yourself and knowing what your interests are. The best job is a job that doesn't feel like a job where you don't get out of bed every day and say, geez, I have to go to work today. You get out of bed and say, I can't wait to do what I have to do today because it's exactly what I want to do. And once you know yourself to know what your interests are, then it becomes a lot easier. And that could be reaching out to alumni. That could be reaching out to people on LinkedIn and asking for advice. It could be going to networking events. There, there's no real one-size-fits-all answer. It depends on what your interests are and finding where, where are people in your local community that share those interests and in your greater community that share those interests and stepping outside your comfort zone and putting yourself in these situations and not being afraid to say, I'm here to learn. I don't know. Can you, what do you think I should do? And uh, just generally interacting with people. You kind of have to get over that shy barrier very quickly. Yeah, that's a... Yeah, it's it can be very unsettling to do things that are new, right? But I guess on one end, being PhD students and working towards to com- like completing a dissertation is stepping out of your comfort zone every every day. But it's thinking about yeah, what kind of helps excite you, and how can work not feel like work? Um, yeah, when I talk to entrepreneurs at universities, uh, to a lot of undergraduates, and they ask me, what, what can I be doing to enhance or further my entrepreneurial career? The first answer I always give is get used to being uncomfortable. If you don't mm-hmm. like roller coasters, go spend a day at the amusement park riding roller coasters. If you're afraid <laughs> of the water, go to the beach if you're close to the beach. Yeah. Because you're just always in new situations that have a tendency to make you uncomfortable. And once you find comfort in that uncertainty and become comfortable with that uncertainty, then the whole world starts to open up. It really mm-hmm. just makes an infinite possibility possible. Mm-hmm. Something that you said was um, knowing yourself and the importance of knowing yourself. And I'm, I'm curious how your identity and 
you kind of continuing to know and understand yourself has really impacted your career journey so far? It had a great impact. And so when you look at my career journey after my PhD, it was sort of meandering for a little bit until I figured out what I liked. And what I liked is not being bored, having my brain entertained, and having no two days look alike. Those were the things that were important to me. And it was really that high-level criteria that I sort of stumbled into the startup venture capital ecosystem just by, you know, being kind of in the right place at the right time. It was sort of a random chance to do that. But I was looking for something specifically that suited those criteria for me about having just diversity in what I do and what I get to think about and having my mind stimulated. It wasn't specific. It was really sort of these abstract, high-level things that guided me. So it... You've done a good job of kind of highlighting a lot of the things that you you've really appreciated from um, your role now and just your story. Um, and you've also talked about some challenges, but I'm curious, I guess, for where you are now, what are the most challenging parts of your job and the roles that you're in right now? Uh, I, it's hard to say what's most challenging. Um because every day is sort of a challenge. I'm just mm. constantly intellectually challenged by learning about new things and talking mm. to people about it. Um, in terms of other challenges, I, I'd say at this point, I don't have any great challenges. Mm-hmm. But in general, the challenge that I had in, in getting here is that somebody always wanted to put me in a box. And so I didn't have the right resume, so I was unqualified. When I started a dermatology company um, in the general biotech community, they you know sort of laughed at me. They said, "You're a mm-hmm. physicist working in dermatology. We can't take you seriously." And then when I had two of the most high-profile dermatologists that ever lived join my advisory board, then mm-hmm. I got started to be taken seriously. And so I think. I would say getting to this point, it was credibility. But now that I feel as if I've established credibility, mm-hmm. it's just sort of fun <laughs> what I do. I um, love that. I, I get to work with friends, sort of my social life and professional life in this community start to blend together. You start to co-invest with your friends, the people you invest in become your friends. And it's just very rewarding. And I'd say today, I don't see a lot of these existential challenges, but over the last decade, there there were quite a bit. Yeah, that's a good point. And something that I heard from what you said was that also challenge isn't really a bad thing either. It's being challenged to think, for example, or challenged to push yourself outside of your comfort zone can often be a great thing and lead us to kind of how you're really enjoying your professional world kind of blending with your personal and more social world as well. Exactly. It's, it's no different than going to the gym and pushing yourself at the gym. You're just yeah. pushing your mind mm-hmm. in a similar way. And if, if you like doing that, the, the challenge is a welcome aspect of it. It's not a negative. Yeah. So I have one more question for you. And I am curious what inspires you right now? Ch- changing the world. Making oh, changing the world. world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that <laughs> very hard to do that as an as an individual. It's very hard to do that. Um, I started yeah. companies because I wanted to change the world, and you realize that you can affect, say, a certain patient population with your new drug, 
but you're eventually effectively limited in what you could do. But being on the venture capital side and working with people and companies, you really have a broad sort of this broad freedom to operate with mm-hmm. the goal of changing the world. Yeah. And building something, whether it's direct or indirect, that that lives beyond me and makes the world a better place is really what inspires me every day. Yeah. It I mean, I I don't disagree with that sentiment. It's it's really wanting to create impact in a way that really helps people, right? So I understand that yeah. I I think about similar things with healthcare, so I get it. <laughs> Ian, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for chatting with us today. I've I've learned so much just from your experience and yeah, I'm really grateful for your time today. Thank you. My pleasure.